Resolute Square. Hey folks, it's Rick Wilson, and welcome back to The Enemies List. My guest today is my good friend and compatriot of the Lincoln Project, Stuart Stevens, a veteran of more Republican campaigns than any other human being I've ever met. The man I wanted to be when I grew up, it's Stuart Stevens, and we're going to talk about all of the chaos and confusion surrounding the Republican primary field, the no-labels scenario, Donald Trump's criminal overhang and exposure, and God knows what else will come up. But Stuart, thank you so much for joining me this morning on the enemies list. How you doing? Uh, thanks for asking me, party, Rick. You had to rub in that elected more of these people who are running the country <laughs> than anybody else. But you know, that's good, man. I know, I know. I'm very high on Madame Defarge's <laughs> list. Yes, the tumbrils, rolls, rolls the, the tumbrils and guillotines. I, I'm going to go in one of the first cards. <laughs> I know, right? One way or the other, one way or the other, we're in trouble. So be it. <laughs> So, Stuart, I wanted to start out today because, you know, we've talked a lot in the last few months about just how much of a sort of charade this entire Republican primary is right now and how all of these people that are that are still willing to bend the knee to Trump essentially are, in my mind, wasting the time of the American people and the American media. Walk me through where you where you score these people in the history of Republican primaries that we've been involved in, because I, I would say they're in the lower quartile. It's very difficult to look at this race and compare it to other races because the way the party has changed, that the party has really become an autocratic movement. So the process of electing an autocratic move or selecting an autocratic leader of an autocratic movement is different than selecting someone to be nominee of an American traditional mainstream political party. Right. So all of the things that you would normally try to do in a primary, position yourself to run in the general try to bring together people. None of those, I think, really apply. So I think there's kind of two truths here, probably. One, that Trump is going to win. And probably the rest is, as you say, is just sort of a charade. I think that's true. And I think that there will be a moment when it might not look like that. You know, in the same way that you look at this last weekend when you had like SEC teams playing, you know, these cupcakes. At the half, it might be close. But by the end, you know, one team is going to be, you know, playing their third string and trying not to run up the score, and the rest are going to be just hanging on for their life. LSU, FSU this weekend, QED. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So people forget in Florida, or, or they have lives they don't know, in Iowa, you can win the caucus with 32,000 votes. So that's sort of a big student body election. So if you look at what happened uh, in 16, Cruz focused a lot on Iowa, went out, was able to get 32,000 votes or 30s, whatever he got. He won Iowa. 
What did it mean? Nothing, absolutely nothing. And we never planned to, to, to go into Iowa. Mitt used to call it the La Brea Tar Pits of politics. <laughs> that it's a lot easier to go Perfect. in than get out. So, you know, but we had this, because Mitt had run in 2008, we had this list of Mitt voters. Mm-hmm. And we kept polling them and calling them. And to our sort of astonishment, honestly, they still were from Mitt. So finally, kind of literally after Thanksgiving, it was like, well, this is stupid if we don't do this. So, you know, Mitt, I think, campaigned eight days in Iowa. That was it. And we didn't spend much money. And he was able to sort of win. He won it when it counted. Then they later recounted and sent to him one. And he was able to win New Hampshire. But we had focused on New Hampshire. And we had laid all this groundwork in New Hampshire. So I don't know. I mean, I could see Trump losing uh, Iowa to, I kind of don't think it would be a DeSantis. I mean, you, you, you were the, the first person I heard to say that this race will probably come down to Trump and someone not named DeSantis. There's a lot of potential Iowa types in that field. You know, you've got the, as much as he's an absurdity, Mike Pence still has a lot of deep evangelical roots that, that that's a big part of the Iowa constituency. There's a little bit of a Tim Scott boomlet in Iowa right now, um, which I don't think will last, but it's it seems to be out there. Um, and weirdly, over the weekend, I heard somebody tell me that Ramaswamy was moving in Iowa, and because you know, and I think just I think that's mostly because he's gotten a lot of coverage lately, more broadly. But you know, there are plenty of plenty of people historically who won Iowa, as you pointed out, that went on to getting uh, zero delegates, which I think is where we're going to end up. I mean, it's it's worth taking a moment. People realize, you know, the Iowa caucus, it's at night. It's usually freezing. Yep. And none of this American stuff about like, you know, secret ballot. No, well, we, we don't, they don't do that shit. You got to so, stand in a gym somewhere with your neighbors. You have to go to a gym, a church basement <laughs> right. with all these people that you're going to have to see next Sunday or at like the next, you know, basketball game in high school. And you get there and then you raise your hand who you're for. So there are all these weird sort of life imitating high school social pressures at work here. And part of that is, you know, Iowans like people, not like New Hampshire, that value their state. So if you commit a lot of time, usually Mm -hmm. you can uh, you can do well there. That's how Centaurum well, ultimately kind of he went around from pizza ranch to pizza ranch. Yep. And you could do that. And you can meet, if you really spend a lot of time, to meet a large percentage of 32,000 people, it's not that difficult. But it is it is unlike any other process in other states. Correct. And the states, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You go to New Hampshire where it's going to take 50 plus thousand to win, and that's really a media war. Yep. Whereas Iowa's never been a media war. No, no it's always um, been a, That was the whole intent war. of Iowa. The level the playing field so that someone who didn't have a lot of money could go out there. Mm-hmm. This is how George Bush in 1980, Rich Bond, our brother Rich Bond, moved from Long Island to Iowa. He lived there. Yep. And, you know, he was able to uh, to win it for Bush. Then Bush wins 80. Then Bush, as sitting vice president, comes in third in 1988. Pat Robertson, right? Pat Robertson, which... <laughs> You can imagine how fun that plane ride was on Air Force Two from Iowa to New Hampshire oh. after your guy just came in third. 
a sitting vice president. I'm glad I was a lot further down the food chain then. <laughs> I was talking to Craig Fuller. He goes, I was on that plane. But then you go to South Carolina, which is an entirely different state. Romney got his ass kicked in South Carolina. But then we went and then you went and you go into Florida. So these states get bigger and bigger and bigger. But you know, the one rule is that to win it all, you have to win. You can't just keep coming in second. You can't do well. The, the, the sort of style points that you might get for Iowa or even New Hampshire becomes meaningless when you get into these other states. A big part of, of these primary elections is this long interaction with the consultants and the staff of the campaigns, with the media, spinning out these scenarios. And it's easy in Iowa to spin out the, uh, here's my bank shot, trick shot, I can win this. And that will take me on with this momentum to New Hampshire. That will boot me into, but it almost never works that way. I can't think of a time where it, where that straight line story worked. And so, you know, for a long time, Ron DeSantis got a lot of leeway because he had so much money in the bank and so many big mega donors behind him. Right? People were like, yeah, well, DeSantis, obviously he's going to do great in Iowa because Jeff Rowe is an Iowa expert. He knows how to do it. He's got all this money. Uh, again, that overhang of Trump, these guys are all scrapping around to try to get 9, 10, 15% of the vote. I think once you end up with Iowa being in the rearview mirror, the race is going to collapse down pretty quickly to real talk. Yeah, you know, I, listen, man, I did two races where I made the case to the candidates that if we win Iowa, it is going to have a major impact in New Hampshire. And I can say in both cases, I was 100% wrong. <laughs> one was the Bob Dole, where right. we won, we won Iowa, and then you know lost to Pat Buchanan in New Hampshire. Pat Buchanan, okay, and then Bush, we, you know, McCain in uh, two thousand only focused on New Hampshire. I was convinced that if we won Iowa, that would then you know sort of give us momentum. We took a sixty point lead into New Hampshire and lost by nineteen. While outspending the other guy three to one. That is a big delta. <laughs> you really have to work at that shit. Right. It does not. It, it, it takes careful planning, <laughs> a lot of difficult execution. You can't just stumble into <laughs> such a phenomenal disaster as that. <laughs> but it also went to what was the rationale of the candidacy. And Buchanan really didn't have a rationale, except he, he was having fun running for president. So, he, you know, he goes along, he gets to Arizona, he starts wearing black cowboy hats and holding large caliber weapons over his head. And people are, this is kind of ridiculous. So what was the rationale ultimately of McCain? He never could resolve that between if he, you know, McCain won the majority of pro-choice voters in uh, New Hampshire in 2000. And McCain was as, as you know, anti-abortion as they came. They just didn't know that. So what is the rationale for these candidates other than Trump? You can say Christie has one. You can say Asa has one. But what is DeSantis' rationale other than Trump? I mean, he's, he's the less fun version. I'm Diet Trump is his, is his answer. I mean, the guy is beige on beige. He's such a clod, though. I mean, it, it's painful to watch the guy. It really is. He reminds me of a more charmless version of Tim Pawlenty or Scott Walker. I mean, Scott Walker could at least in a bowling alley or a diner or, or whatever, 
kind of sort of act like a normal human being for a few minutes, but he just consistently cannot. But Walker was a normal human being. I mean, I don't think the guy graduated from college till he was like 45 or something, you know, I mean, he was just kind of this, you know, moke from, from Wisconsin. Kalani was a great guy. He was just not a great candidate. There's a gift folks in, in, in politics and you, yes, you can learn some of the skills, but if you don't have that gift, you don't have that gift. You got to have everything. At a certain point, you have to enjoy it. I think. I think it's like a sports. Yeah. That if you know, if you're out there, and you're hating, not liking what you're doing, and I always get the sense watching DeSantis, he's asking himself, "Why am I having to do this? I should be the nominee." Right. And say what you will. I mean, Obama had a lot of fun when he ran for president. Yeah, Obama enjoyed himself. He. Th- he thought he was a long shot, and so he was looser and more comfortable in his skin and had fun doing it. And Clinton was going through the motions. Hillary was unhappy from the from day one. She was always cross-checking herself way too intensely. Like, did I fuck up by saying happy instead of glad? Was I, you know, should I have <laughs> waved three times instead of two or whatever? Yeah. But but yeah, no. And look, and Trump honestly had fun running in 16. He loved it. He, oh, he yeah. Ate that, he ate that oh, stuff. Oh, yeah, the up. time of his life. Yeah. He's in that same position now. He can run as an outsider. He, you know, he is again the fuck you candidate. Oh, yeah. The worst position imaginable for Donald Trump is to run as an incumbent president having to defend a record that he has no idea what the fucking record is. <laughs> so, I mean, how can right. he defend it? Right. At a certain point, he bumped up against truth. You can say in 16, we're going to have a beautiful health care program, it's going to be wonderful. I'm going to balance the budget. But then, you know, when you don't do that and you blow the budget out more than any other president by some multiple in the history of the country, it's kind of like, well, and then, you know, you have COVID and he killed a lot of people, which, you know, focus groups have consistently shown that when you kill people, it's not a positive. Right. It just it, so, it just doesn't I mean, work like that. But the guy the, still almost won. Right. Other than the Genghis Khan demo, it just doesn't work for people. So I look, you look at these polls, right? And Trump is tied with Biden. Yep. Which means Biden loses electoral college. That's right. We got to be up six, seven points in my view to have not sleepless nights going into November next year. I mean, how do you see that? I think first off, we're past the era where Americans are going to have presidents who have approvals in the fifties or sixties. I think we're past that era. I think the two separate media silos are so powerful now, especially on the right, where they are told every day that the greatest job creation record in history is, in fact, a disaster. They're told every day that, you know, people are are, are eating dead dogs on the side of the road because the economy is so bad, even though every number out there says that we are that we had a soft landing, essentially, from the crisis of 2020. And and that Biden is doing a an amazing job of creating uh, creating jobs and creating economic opportunity. And there's for the first time in 40 years, we have actual rising wage growth in the country, which is madness. People have they, they haven't factored that. None of it seems to penetrate. And it's because that right wing media bubble is so powerful. And I think the biggest part of it isn't just the bubble. It's the culture on the right is no longer ideological. It's now an oppositional defiant culture war stance. So everything the other team does is bad. Everything Biden does is communist or 
everything that that is in Build Back Better is trying to you know seize the means of production from the working folk. All of it's insane, but there are very few Republicans now. Seize the production. <laughs> there are very okay. few Republicans now who are willing to stand up and go, no, uh-uh, nope, we're not doing it. They follow along, they play the game, they go on Fox, they go on OAN, all that. So, so that's why I think Biden's numbers have not held up. And I will say this, the media's desire to both sides this stuff, Biden releases great job numbers, and they literally go to Republicans and say, but Kevin McCarthy says the economy is a disaster. And they report it as if it is, if you're comparing McCarthy's opinion to the statistical fact. That is a media posture, the both sides-ism stuff. It's a failure. It is. This is why we started Resolute Square in part, because... Yeah, sure. Well, we both write a lot. We we both like journalists. We're not journalist haters. But I think that our friends in journalism will admit that when Trump came, their model that objectivity was the greatest good yeah, really only operated in a society where you have people of some semblance of goodwill on both sides. Right. And when you don't have that, how do you tell both sides of a lie? What is your obligation as a journalist to tell both sides of a lie? And it, and, and I think they've really struggled with this. How do you do this? You know, you look at the transition from how do you describe when Trump lies? It was, you know, Trump offered a different opinion. So now they're more calling him a liar. But they still are hesitant about it. They still don't know what to do with it. You know, if you look at Hungary or places uh, where, where democracies have slid into autocracies, the autocrats know how to manipulate the values of a democratic system to kill the democratic system. They basically hack democracy. As our friends Ruth Ben-Ghiat and Ann Applebaum have written and Tim Snyder have written extensively on, democracy has a lot of sort of suicide pills built into it if bad actors know how to exploit them. And and these people know how to exploit a lot of these things. So, Stuart, I want to move on to one other uh, big area that that we've been worried about a lot. I wrote an article in Substack yesterday called The Rocket Sled about this. It's this idea that we are on this very fast track, moving very fast down a a very straight line toward a Trump-Biden battle. But so many people, especially on the Democratic side, still believe that somehow some miracle will occur and Donald Trump will be in jail by November of 2024. And that the legal overhang that's, that's hovering around Trump, which, by the way, folks, is completely deserved at every level. He's a scumbag. He's a criminal. He's done it all. But I'm worried that people have counted too much into that and are too too sanguine about Biden's chances. They're going to say, oh, Trump's going to be facing all these charges. He'll be in jail. He's... How much do you think they're overcounting on that, Stuart, at this point? Because I, I got to tell you, I'm panicked about it. Look, you're the first person I ever heard say, very matter-of-factly, you're asked a question. I forget where we were. And you, you, you said, what do you think is going to happen to Donald Trump? And you said, I think Donald Trump will end up in jail. Yeah. And, and you, you said this like, I think, you know, I might have even been 2015. And I will say, not to embarrass you, but with the one phrase, everything Trump touches dies, <laughs> is going to be, along with Adam Sewer's, uh, what is it that he, he wrote? The cruelty is the point. Those two phrases are going to be the hallmarks of the Trump era in 50 years, that's what people are going to read and say, these are the two in a a chaotic cacophonous world. These are the true truths that really stand out. It's absolutely true. And it's just, you look at the mugshots. I mean, (laughs) look at that. 
So, I mean, like all these people, you know, Jenna Ellis up there with her, like, yearbook picture, you know. Like, no, you're right. going to jail, girl. You're going to jail. The inability to imagine Trump has been one of his greatest assets. And certainly in 2016, I mean, a lot of people were wrong about Trump, but it's really hard to find anybody who's more wrong than me. I could not imagine him winning a guy who talked in public about having sex with his daughter winning the Republican nomination. And then that called me crazy. And then I couldn't imagine him beating, uh, particularly after Access Hollywood. So that benefited Trump. And I think now the inability to imagine Trump having 91 indictments, maybe some guilty convictions that are on appeal, being elected president of the United States is what you're talking about. So you, you bump up against this. Well, you know, and the danger is exactly what you're saying. This We're really not going to have to do this incredibly hard, difficult, life-altering work, which is what a presidential campaign is, because the guy's going to be in jail. Right. You know, I will say this. I, I have a lot of respect for the Biden political operation at the highest levels. I mean, I think in 16, I mean, 20, they did a really phenomenal job. Mm -hmm. But you've got to win by four or more. And this thing is, is, is going to be close. And if you don't think that Donald Trump can be the next president of the United States, you're living in a fantasy. For sure. And there's like a lot of magical thinking around Trump, and there always has been. I mean, I, I used to suffer from it a lot more than I do now. Um, I believed when I heard him say, oh, no, I don't like, I don't like people who weren't captured about John McCain's war record. I believe that every Republican in the country would stand up and put the middle finger out and go, get the hell out of here. No more off the stage. You're done. And access Hollywood, everything else. And it, I think people have undercounted that the baseline state for Trump his entire life has been that he's in legal or political or personal trouble. It's like you jump in an ice bath for the first time and you're shocked by it. Trump lives in that ice bath of chaos and confusion all the time. He's not shocked by any of this stuff. It's always been there. And, and, it, and it, it's why he is both the weakest and the strongest candidate for the Republican Party. I have a scenario, by the way, I want to scare the crap out of you, Stuart, because this is, I came up with it yesterday and it scared the crap out of me. I have a suspicion to protect Trump legally that right after the first couple of primaries are done and Trump is obviously going to be the nominee, that the RNC will shortcut the nomination process and declare him by acclamation as the Republican nominee sometime in late March, early April so that he gets the legal protection mm -hmm. of saying, I'm the Republican nominee. You're going after me for political reasons. That's fascinating. You should write about that. No one is saying that. I did. I did yesterday. That Rocket Sled article has that in there. And I'm, I wrote it and I was laying awake last night going, oh, fuck, what if that happens? Because, you know, as you like to say, it's like the, the greatest danger is not realizing what the greatest danger is. I think that, that he may have a layer of legal protection from being the nominee sooner than a lot of Republicans. And I think sooner than DOJ, Jack Smith, Alvin Bragg, and Fannie Willis have anticipated. You know, people don't realize that there's no mention of political parties in the Constitution. And a political party is really a bowling club. It can pick a president, a nominee, any way they want to, which is why we see no labels creating a party. And they say, well, you know, a couple of us are going to get together and we're going to decide who we really in this because there's not enough right. participation in the process. Ten of us are going to get together and decide who's going to be, you know, our nominee. That was exactly what I was going to ask you about next is, is the no labels thing. And folks, I want you to understand no labels 
when they are talking about putting another, a third party nominee on the ballot, they're not going to elect that person in a primary. That person won't be put out there in a, in a primary like the Republicans and Democrats have traditionally. That person will be selected in secret by a small group of donors to no labels who happen to all be wealthy oil and gas, private equity, and real estate billionaires from Texas um, who are funding Nancy Jacobson and Mark Penn's campaign here. First off, set aside the hypocrisy of no labels. I can't imagine that that the American people will look at that and go, wow, you pick somebody in secret and they're the only option? Talk about narrowing the field of, of choices for American voters. Yeah, but you know, the, the problem is if 95% of possible voters have that opinion, the other 5% can still give it to Trump. Right. You know, this Nader thing, when the Gore people say, well, Nader cost Gore the election, you know, I'm glad I've never had to debate that. You look at uh, third party candidates and how uh, they cost Hillary votes. It goes back to 44,000 people changed their votes in 20 in exactly the right places. Trump is still president. So it's a tiny, tiny little percentage of votes that no label needs to get. And the absurdity of no labels is they know they can't win. Why, why are people saying something that is demonstrably untrue? I mean, it, it, it really, I don't really see the difference in saying, give me money and I will cure cancer. I, I increasingly find this difficult to believe that anyone is engaging in this in good faith. Yeah. And how? It's extraordinarily dangerous. I mean, I, I look at Larry Hogan, who, look, was a, a friend of mine, a client. You know, I love the guy. I don't think Larry Hogan's going to run as a nominee. And I think in his mind, there is no detriment to the process now to talking about it. But there is a detriment to the process. It does. Anytime you have someone who's like a credible human being out there, Larry Hogan, you know, governor of Maryland, tough state, great governor. He's out there talking about Oh, Joe Biden is such a failure. Who does that help? Joe Biden or Donald Trump? Well, you see the guy that wrote the no labels policy book is out there on Twitter calling for the impeachment of Biden Harris. Yeah, this is definitely not a group that is that is stacking the decks to uh, to go after Donald Trump in any of their efforts. The co-chairman of, of no labels, Pat McCrory, former governor of North Carolina, his campaign manager, Chris Lasavitas, is Donald Trump's campaign manager. Call me crazy. That seems like an odd connection. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So Bush is running for re-election. He needs a third party, and Karl Rove is running that third party. Right. <laughs> but look, I don't know, man. There's no, there's no connection here. This shit just happened. Totally unrelated. You know, I mean, there's, you know, 320 million Americans. We just happened to pick the same guy to be campaign manager. <laughs> you, you know, I mean, it, you know, and Harlan Crow just happens to be donating a lot, a lot of money to both of us. It's crazy how that worked out. It's insane. Yeah. I mean, it, that's the thing that it is so absurd. At a certain point, you know, you should just stick to arguing something like, you know, aliens built the pyramids. <laughs> something that is, has some logical... You know, case to be made here, you know, why did they do this? You know, it had to be aliens. You know, I can buy that before an independent is going to be president of the United States. Absolutely. Well, Stuart, I appreciate you coming on the enemies list today, brother. I appreciate your time as always. And I will look forward to talking to you again later. And I'm going to see you out in Los Angeles, California next week. 
Look forward to it, brother. All right, my brother. Thanks, man. All right. Take care, man. Once again in Florida this weekend, Nazis. Now, look, I could put the Nazis on the top of my enemies list any old time. They represent a vile ideology from hell. They should be purged from American life, both politically, morally, socially, and every other way. But they still have a right to free speech in this country, sometimes to my great regret. However, the person who gets dinged this weekend for the fact that Nazis marched the streets in in Florida openly, sig heiling, openly calling for the end of Jews, openly calling for, for a new Holocaust, they're marching around the streets of Florida. And oddly enough, the governor of the state of Florida is dead silent, because of course he is. Now look, I'm not saying Ron DeSantis is a Nazi, but what I am saying is that Ron DeSantis has been the fastest guy in the West to criticize teachers, to criticize higher education, to criticize LGBT people, to criticize drag shows, to get in fights with Disney World, to go after anyone and everyone who criticizes anything he does on any topic. He's threatened legislature legislators who, who, have, who have had the mildest disagreements with him. This is a guy who pops his mouth off at every goddamn thing under the sun. And yet, for some reason, he can't come out and say, Nazis should get the fuck off the streets of Florida. They should go home. I'm going to send out the FDLE and the National Guard. We're going to find out who these people are. We're going to make sure they get taken care of in terms of getting them exposed, pushing them out of the public dialogue. Sack the hell up, Ron, just for once and come out and say, hey, Nazis are bad. This is not a hard exercise. This is not a difficult problem. These people are a growing threat in this state. White supremacists and Nazis are a growing threat threat in this state. They are a growing portion of this state. They are infused in state government, especially in the the Department of Corrections, and you know it. They are infused in a lot of state and county government offices in North Florida, particularly, and you know it. Some moral leadership on this, Ron, would go a long goddamn way to convince Floridians that you don't have some tolerance for people that you may not share their exact views, but you clearly don't mind if they think that you do. And that's it for the end of this lesson this week. Thanks again for listening to the enemies list. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at the Rick Wilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah. But you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list.